This is Tulsa Kinney, editor of Artillery Magazine. Artillery's been around 11 years, L.A. focus. It's the only art magazine that's fun to read. In this issue... There are articles featuring Christopher Reynolds, Rye Rocklin, Narciso Martinez, and Tulsa's friend Jonathan Gold, the Los Angeles Times food writer in one of his last interviews. Artillery is sold nationally on bookstands, newsstands, and museum stores. They're distributed free in L.A. galleries, so maybe check that. Also, you can subscribe to Artillery and get it on your front porch. Go to artillerymag.com slash subscribe. Well, I got a phone call from a guy who was in the book saying, uh, should I sue you or should I uh, ask for a copy of the book? So I said, I'll give you a copy of the book. Hi, everybody. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. This is Weed Art. A podcast where we talk to a real-life visual artist. About... And I had this in the Ann Arbor Art Fair. And I had, like, a cheap booth in the sort of renegade part. And this little kid saw it, and he thought it was cute, and then he realized what it was, and he went... (gasps) You know, that was not my intention, and I never wanted to do those kinds of things. Or one time, my first L.A. gallerist had a booth at the art fair, and he had this little sculpture of the Virgin Mary pulling a Steve Bannon and giving herself a blowjob. And I thought, you know, if this was in his gallery, that would be an okay thing. But doing it in this place that everyday people wander in and out of, it's not so okay. This episode, we're going to talk to Jim Shaw about... I have more ideas than I can actually produce even with assistance. You know, as someone who didn't have anybody interested in their work for 20 years, it's kind of nice when people want it. You've had support from these galleries. You don't want them to suffer by just saying, I don't feel like making art right now. But at the moment, I wish I could take a month off and just watch TV shows. So we're here with Jim Shaw in Jim Shaw's fabulous studio. It is covered in drawings and books and and reference materials. I haven't had a chance to clean up in between shows because I've been busy. Honestly, do you do that? I do. Okay. It's not that clean, but it's... I managed to rearrange the chaos so everything makes a little sense. Because all of my shows are just everything I made since the last show, so I don't have the on-off schedule. I just... I, so. It's all on, unfortunately. Right now I need to take like a month off because I'm still suffering from a case of mono that I picked up in January. And every time I work hard, it comes back. Well, don't kiss me. I'm not I mean, even if we get a real rapport going. Since January, it's a long time. Well, it went away, but then it comes back every time you work hard. And the only way you can make art shows is to work hard. You heard it here first. Where were you born? Midland, Michigan in 1952. I'm from the middle of the baby boom generation. And we're the ones who were promised the world where there were corporations that would give us jobs for the rest of our lives. And then somewhere in the middle of the college, I realized all those teaching jobs are gone. By the time I went to like my 10th high school reunion, I was talking to one guy who had trained as a a commercial lithographer or something. He said, I can't get a job. So this is like the, the land of Trump. White guys that thought the world was theirs on a platter and it's not anymore. I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm a professional. If you're a professional from that age group, you're fine. You're one of the elite. I guess I'm part of the elite, even though I always thought of myself as middle class. 
did you have the kind of parents who were like, oh, you want to be an artist, that's a terrible idea, don't do that? Or did you have the kind of parents who were like, oh, you want to be an artist, this is great, here, have crayons? Well, my grandfather was a commercial artist. He was more successful than my father, economically, because he was a partner in a high-end printing firm. I think he said, you know, I'll pay for his art education because he saw that I had talent. And we always had advertising magazines, the design magazines, The New Yorker. We were in a small town in the Midwest, but it was a weird small town. It had like the second highest amount of PhDs in the country after Oak Ridge, Tennessee. We always knew there was something weird about the place, and now I think it was that there were a lot of people on the autism spectrum. It's like an engineering town. Yeah, a place like San Jose. You get a lot high percentage right. of autistic or Asperger's. Mm-hmm. People, I would say I'm on that Asperger's spectrum myself. Not quite human is the way I used to consider it. My father's a workaholic, so I, my life was kind of controlled by my mother and my three sis, older sisters. So I basically was pussy whipped from day one. But you did read a lot of horror comics. The horror comics came a little later because they started getting reproduced. Uh, People were noticing you had talent. Like, what were you drawing and what were you looking at when you were a kid? I was sculpting dinosaurs and drawing superheroes and psychedelic posters later. Uh, Psychedelic underground comics. Were you making posters that got used for people's gigs? Eventually, uh, I had a friend who was trying out being an entrepreneur. He ended up being uh, one of the original managers of The Knack got screwed out of that position. Then he was the manager of the Naughty Sweeties. Weirdly enough, uh, Lauren, the woman who was in charge of rustling everybody at the Marciano Arts Foundation, her parents lived next door and were part of the reason why the uh, previous uh, people running the place, who were like a Persian disco guy, were forced out of the neighborhood. And maybe not why the Masons were forced out, but similar theme, too much parking on the street. That's why it's an arts foundation and not a Persian disco or a Masonic hall anymore. Anyway, her father was the lead singer of the Naughty Sweeties. Uh-huh. And I met him at a club in the valleys watching Captain Beefheart and his magic band with my friend Scott. Who Was I'm, this like high school or is this like later? Oh, this is later. This is like 1980. So eventually you went to art school. I went to Cooper Union for like a week. I went to uh, orientation, and I realized while I was there that I was totally out of place. Everybody else was from the New York area and had friends, and they had nowhere to live. They had no housing authority. At least lived in the dorms. They didn't have dorms then. I went home. You went to school, and you had nowhere to stay, and so you went I was looking at apartments. They seemed so expensive, like $75 a month. Yeah. Seems like a lot of money. That's insane. Yeah. Having never lived on my own, and we're talking about a basement apartment filled with cockroaches, and one place had like three different locks plus a, a pole that went into the ground. Mm. Like the, the paranoia level was pretty high in 1970 around Cooper Union. It was like a Puerto Rican slum, so the housing prospects were iffy. I, I was listening to the Velvet Underground, but then I was in Velvet Underground land. I couldn't handle it because I was a little white kid from a small town in the Midwest. John's Puerto Rican from New York. It's true. My father can confirm all these stories. And nobody in the buildings would speak English. I took two years of French and I didn't remember any of it. I just felt alienated. Right. And maybe it would have been a wonderful experience. But then I went back home, went to junior college for three semesters, transferred to University of Michigan. 
I met Mike Kelly there. We were the two weirdest people there. We ended up moving into a house, a rooming house called God's Oasis after a sign I found at a yard sale. God's Oasis Drive-In Church. And we put it on the front of the house. You said you were the weirdest people there. What made you so weird at the time? Asperger's, maybe? I don't know. When Woodstock came along, I wanted to run away from the hippie label as fast as I could because all the people that were abusing me, all the jocks and the overlords were wanting to be like what I was, and I didn't want to be that anymore. You know, we were like proto-punks. There were weird people in the world, for sure, of Ann Arbor, but we were sort of the weirdest guys in the art school. So you didn't fit even when everybody didn't fit. You didn't fit even more. Yeah. So we both applied to CalArts and both went to CalArts in 76. So your band formed back when you were in Ann Arbor, right? Yeah. You must have gotten at least adventurous enough to do that, right? Yeah, but we only really, we didn't hardly play at all. We played at some art party, we played at an art school party, and we played at a small comic book convention. So the whole thing of like, oh, destroy all monsters, it's mostly Mike Kelly became a big artist and you became a successful artist, and then retroactively destroy all monsters is a thing? Well, after we left, uh, Niagara and Carrie were still doing something. Carrie kind of went insane. Oh, this guy that was crashing at our house he found recently gave him some... LSD. You just found this out years later. Like a year year ago, yeah. There was this crazy guy crashing on our couch, and we had a psychopathic taxi driver living at this house. During the Ann Arbor Film Festival, I came home, and he brought the guy who was crashing on the couch, who was a big guy, brought him like by the scruff of his neck. He had blood dripping down his forehead, and he said, This guy stole my dope. This is what happens to guys who steal my dope. It was a chaotic atmosphere to live in maybe as chaotic as the Lower East Side in 1970. Okay, so the guy who stole his dope was the guy that slipped the LSD to Carrie, and that's when Carrie kind of went mental and came back on Thorazine. So Destroy All Monsters carry on as an entirely different, like, Midwestern, a rock punk band, I'd say, for years, and then that evolved into Dark Carnival. Meantime, Mike and I moved to... California. So you were gone at that We point. were gone. Mike started the Poetics. I had gotten tired of performing, and I would jam with them, but I, wouldn't, I was never on stage with the Poetics. And I realized that everything I was interested in doing at that time was basically based on Fred Frith and Hans Reichel's solo guitar stuff. And if I couldn't hear it, then I wouldn't know if I was doing anything. I couldn't know that what I was playing was the right thing to play. So. Oh, you were Asperger's guitar rock. Well, I just never learned how to play guitars. But, I mean, it sounds like the stuff that you were into was also very technical, kind of... Not really. It was more like what you could do if you had no technique. (laughs) But you liked the sound of sound, and that's still what I do. But now I use my voice, so I have more control over it. So I continued doing that stuff, but I I kept all the tapes that we recorded as Destroy All Monsters. And that was the basis for the box set that Mike put out in the 90s, 20, 25 years later... But Carrie also had some tapes. Carrie and Niagara were go- doing this kind of Velvet Underground thing with actual lyrics and songs, and we were doing this noise thing that Carrie was involved with. Niagara was never really involved with the noise stuff. So when she split off with Ashton, it was more like the more normalish music, and we were more the Amundulish right. weird stuff. And Discount Records, they had a big import section, and one day they made them all two bucks, so... 
I just got tons of uh, Sun Ra and Amandul and Magma and all this weird shit from that bin. Another thing about that period is uh, the same people that were about to form punk bands or whatever were not only listening to Krautrock, they were listening to prog rock. I mean, like, there were weirder ends of it, like uh, Arthur Brown's Kingdom Come. And then there was the more popular stuff like Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. But King Crimson was sort of a touchstone for many sides and all that. So it was like the same record nerds. I can see that. Doing all that stuff. In terms of like when you started showing a lot art, you were like a half step behind people. Was that because of like the start stop thing and then moving to LA? Well, there was a general thing in the air of anti ego. There are people with egos, like Mike had a much bigger ego than I did. You know, he had visions of grandeur for himself, but he kept that to himself. Didn't was he a bass player? No. He oh, because that a, sounds like drummer. a bass player move. When you have visions drummer. of grandeur, but you don't tell anyone. It's... He was a drummer. You know, he once told one of our dealers that if it weren't for his sexual preferences or ideas about sex, he thought he could be the president of the United States. <laughs> no, he could be. It's hard to think of someone who could be the president of the United States right now, though, honestly. (laughs) I didn't know it at the time. He had a photographic memory. So he shares with uh, Jackie Gleason, David Bowie, and Martha Stewart that if you can utilize it, a photographic memory will make you a genius, et cetera. So he could, like, name off all this art historical stuff that I did not understand. I never wanted to be a teacher in part because I was so insecure about my knowledge of art history, but I also had so many bad teachers, especially at University of Michigan, that I didn't want to be another bad teacher. I wanted to know something. Now I know it's that I'm way too self-centered to be a good teacher. When you're starting to develop like an artistic personality beyond like you can draw and you're in California, like what were you thinking about? What was influencing you? Well, uh, one of the reasons I went to CalArts was seeing films by Pat O'Neill. And Pat O'Neill was... It was sort of like uh, Rosenquist on film, in a way. That merging of multiple imagery into one thing was kind of a basis of uh, fomenting a schizoid image that I was very into. I'd been doing Xerox collages when I got to CalArts. I imitated Pat O'Neill by using positive and a negative with two different images, so you'd see like two things at once, plus a third thing in the relative rest of the space. Was it more like the images merged and it looked like a strange image or is it one of those things where you look at it one way and it looks like a rabbit and the other way it looks like a duck? It was It was literally if you had like a high contrast image of this guy's face then the white parts would be one image and the black parts would be another image. And so within those two images colliding you'd see the third image of the guy. So that was like what you were doing for four years? Two no, years that was for like one year. Okay. I also realized that I had a pretty low uh, tolerance for repeating myself. So I would just kind of work on something until I felt like I was done with it. I still do that. It was a little faster back then because there was nobody buying any of it. So it was just, you know, piling up. My so you were cycling through yeah. styles and different Yeah, ways I mean, of I did these uh, sort of expressionist airbrush things. When I was in school, in the summer break between years at CalArts, I worked at a mask factory, the Don Post Mask Factory, for which there is now a coffee table book that weighs about 20 pounds. It's like that thick. Of their masks? Of their masks. I mean, some of the people who ended up 
doing a lot of makeup effects in the industry worked there. And I learned how to make masks there. I also learned how to airbrush there. Were they latex? Or latex, and then they had the thicker ones. Star Wars was about to come out. They were readying these Star Wars masks that were all, almost all made with the thicker stuff. Some had hair appliques. And the thicker stuff had to be baked. It had to be baked in this oven. And I always wish I had some images of that oven they had. Like one of their big sellers was Tor Johnson from Plan 9 from Outer Space. So mm -hmm. it's basically a fat, bald guy with a crack in his head. Right. So they'd be four of these Tor Johnson heads, or it could have been Mickey Mouse, on this cross. Actually, eight, because they'd be, they'd be like bolted onto this thing. And it would spin around slowly to slosh the contents and then the oven would come up on wheels and close the door behind it. That's oh, really intense. It was such a beautiful image. And you didn't get any pictures? No, I didn't have a cell phone in <laughs> 1977. That's something you would see on Sesame Street, like when they show how crayons are made or pasta, like that would have been good. Yeah, I think they moved to Vegas or someplace where labor is cheaper. Many Los Angeles industries moved out there. Yeah. Clown factory. You found yourself changing styles just because you were bored of the process? Or well, I think I'd done idea? all I could do with one thing or another. I started doing these airbrush illustrations based on photos I'd taken or noir stills. Neo, I'd done some what turned out to look kind of like Cindy Sherman photos, but not all of myself, of other people set up. You know, a lot of shadows and strange looks on people's faces. I've been collecting these random stills out of Hollywood bookstores. Baldessari was doing the same. Right. I was trying to get illustration work. I had taken a class from John Van Hammersfeld. Basically, you know, nobody was interested in it, but I was at the same time doing these distorted expressionist airbrush things. I kind of finished those things off about the same time I started the My Mirage series was the first thing that I thought, oh, this is a concept, and so it's conceptual. It was illustrational, but also conceptual. It was the first thing I thought of as being actual art with a capital A. And Like a lot of the original, earlier pop artists, they had been illustrators or worked in commercial art, and then they started doing pop art, and then that way they were showing in galleries. But like, when you were like giving yourself permission to be like, all right, I'm going to work in this way, and then I could, it could be fine art. Who were the people who were already showing her? You're thinking like, oh, those are the people that make that seem viable. Or was seeing there... Cindy Sherman. And, she was out there. And, well, when I finally saw her work and seeing uh, Longo, I thought, this I understand, whereas someone like uh, Lawrence uh, Wiener, I, I just don't get it. I must be stupid. You know, I mean, I understood to a certain extent, but I wanted there to be something more. Right. But you got to understand that in the, the late 70s, in L.A., there was no art world. In the broader world, there was no art world. When I was doing uh, this one piece that involved a circular filing cabinet, which was an, a scrap image file for an illustrator who was also a member of the Oist religion, I was tearing apart ads and stuff from old magazines, basically, and filling up different categories in this thing with 35 file drawers. And the last thing I did was tear up 1970s art magazines. And looking at that, I was like taken aback at the lack of anything interesting being covered at all. It was all bad abstraction with the occasional nod to either performance art, maybe a little bit of conceptual, and some photorealism. But 90% of it was Paul, I know it was Paul, Paul Jenkins? Paul Jenkins, who's like 
did these sort of liquidy splash things, right. like the the sub genre of better abstract artists. Do you feel like the people who are coming up who are doing this sort of pop influence maximalist imagery, like, did you feel like okay, there are these minimalists and like really dry conceptual artists, and we're the other, the opposite? Well, you always felt like you know you want to be against that other thing, right? right? Also, having uh, had some dispiriting art shows by faculty at U of M. It was sort of inspirational to see the work of uh, Laurie Anderson and Jonathan Borofsky, among others, and Baldessari. But they were visiting artists at CalArts. So you could look at them and go, uh, it's an adult. They make interesting art. Another inspirational artist was uh, one that Mike sought out and invited to talk at University of Michigan was Oyvind Falstrom. Mm -hmm. That was uh, uh, mind-blowing because at one point we went out drinking with him afterwards and he said, oh, you guys are lucky. You guys have an actual art education. I didn't have anything like that. And then he said that his favorite artists were the EC comic artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was like a little stamp of approval that you weren't going to get normally. I had a very low self-esteem so I wasn't going to assume that I could succeed. I was working in special effects, doing mostly TV commercials. I first worked at a place called Mid-Ocean that was owned by a guy who turned out to be part of the DuPont family by marriage. And his girlfriend uh, ended up directing a lot of Madonna videos and did uh, Pet Cemetery, Mary Lambert. I think she was sort of the brains of the operation. She did the, the Ramones video or the Stephen King movie? Pet the Sims. Stephen King movie. Okay. And part two. That was a scary freaking movie. <laughs> the girl with spinal meningitis in that movie. There's just a scene where she's got like this long like worm like spine and she's just like turned like it's a terrifying scene. Well that's as if you're a parent the scene where the little kid's running and gets run over by a truck. That's terrifying. You're a parent? I am a parent. Mm -hmm. Then I worked on Tron for a few weeks. and What did you do on Tron? Airbrushing backgrounds, and we worked on all these trailers. On so like, this should be blue, and you're like, all right. No, you just do it in black and white, and they do mm. color separations to get the glow. The guy who invented all of that. Oh, that glow. Was, I think uh, that might be the same glow. It's like the light from the light tables coming through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're using milk plexi or something on the, either on the thing or on the camera. And Richard Taylor was the overall art director. It mm -hmm. turns out he was best buddies with Paul McCarthy in their college days. And then later on, his son lived in the apartment across from our present house. No wonder they're making all this art about like, conspiracy theories, essentially. It's like, this is a real L.A. conspiracy. It's a conspiracy or it's just an accident. I don't know. If you go to Yale yeah. and you're in Skull and Bones, it's kind of like these are the kids you were going to school with. But between things that, if you're not in it, people know Tron. And then they know, like, Pet Cemetery, and then they might know your work, Mike Kelly's work. Well, I was there. the animation director for The Hidden and Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, and I did all the storyboarding for Earth Girls Are Easy. Um, I always wondered who did the storyboarding wow. on that. Uh, I, I mean, saw that recently. I designed the title sequence. The company ran out of money mm -hmm. halfway through, so the dream sequence and the end titles got the kibosh, but I got to drive the director, Julian Temple, who was the director of the... Sex Pistols movie around Los Angeles because he didn't drive. So you were doing all right in commercial. In yeah, so I didn't care that I wasn't going to make a living as an artist. You never expected to make a living as an artist. Mike was teaching full time. You know, that's how people survived. I decided that I wasn't going to be a teacher, that I would work in special effects. So during this time, were you making paintings and stuff? 
Yeah. I actually started working on my work at work because I was always begging people for stuff to do if I was bored. And then they'd all come do at the same time and I'd be killing myself. So I thought it was better not to beg. Those those feast or famine things where they want you on call, but well, you don't have to do for you're a while. Well, you're there 40 hours a week. And if it's busy, you're there So you're in a big hours. office and you just like start drawing something? How I just that? have you know my little sketchbook with me and I do all the detail work. So did you take imagery from work and like put it directly into the things you were painting? Like you'd be like, oh, this is this guy. You're I like, gave a bunch of stuff to Pat O'Neill that was in these horrible Sylvania light commercials that ended up in Water and Power, some of the footage there. I did shoot special effects for some of the My Mirage pieces uh, off hours at Robert Abel's. It was like the top of the line special effects for TV commercials. Later I worked at a place called Dream Quest that got kind of gobbled up by Disney and no longer exist. We worked on The Abyss. When you work on a movie or a TV show or commercial, would you like take any of the images directly from that and like put that into your work? I would occasionally do something like a storyboard that was a comment on special effects, but no, it wasn't that direct, but it was more like being methodical. I mean, I have to be very methodical with these paintings that I'm doing on old backdrops, because if I cover up an area that's all cracked old paint, then I realize, oh, that thing was supposed to be over here an inch. Then I have to go back in and redo all that stuff. So I try to make sure I do as little of that repainting as possible because it's a painful thing to do. And it's kind of like people who, like, they write for TV shows like or something. They write for screenplays. And then at night, they will go and, like, do an open mic as a stand-up comedian. Become a heroin addict. Or, or, they're becoming a heroin addict. Well, that That's not one. necessarily like a product that the rest of us can consume. They're no, being a heroin. Well, that guy wrote a Ben Stiller movie about his... A permanent work. midway. Jerry yeah, Stahl, right? Yeah. Worked for a prominent gallerist in L.A. Yeah. It's L.A. conspiracy. But I mean more like you're working in the commercial industry, and some of it's fun, and some of it's being asked to do things that you're like probably not as good as you could feel like you could do. And then you're kind of blowing off steam in your own work. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that kind of mentally where you were at, or they just feel like completely different things to you? There were different things. I just never could commit myself totally. If Like, at one point I got a call about going up to Marin County and working, doing, like, matte paintings for uh, Skywalker. If I had done that, I might have continued on because films are something you can feel a little more into. That would be your job now. Yeah, that would be my job now, yeah. maybe. And some of the people that I worked with ended up getting Oscars for special effects, but that was not my goal in life. Uh, I, I did enjoy special effects. I grew up you know, reading monster movies, uh, reading monster magazines, and so it was something I could put all my problem-solving capabilities towards and my artistic talents. But after I became an artist for a while and then the market crashed, I tried to work in the industry some more, and I was up against people who had been educated in computer graphics. That didn't exist right, in the late 70s. Yeah. People were learning as they went. You know, they were just better at designing crazy animation. I mean, now I'm like, I go to see stuff, and I'm just shocked at the amount of work that goes into something like... Something terrible. Well, not I, necessarily. I mean, I mean, the good stuff, I'm not shocked. I'm amazed at how well, much work goes into some of the bad stuff. Well, one of the things I noticed, like I was watching one of those Batman movies, the one with Mr. Freeze. Oh, God, that was the worst one. And He's always making freezing puns. Put you on ice now. The art direction was amazing. The art direction and the special effects were really top-notch, or around the same time I saw the movie version of Lost in Space. Again, you know, the 
direction and the story were awful, but the special effects were great. And that still goes on. Not that uh, Ghost in the Shell was a bad film or anything. There were so many special effects that it was just like you were numbed by it. It was, you know, dense layers or Valerian, that city that was only to be seen with certain goggles, or pretty amazing. Uh, You know, the casting didn't work so well, but, uh, you know. So I thought if I had a better literary bent, I I thought you could make a dogma science fiction film. I would remake, the problem would be copyrights. I would take what was shot of uh, Naked Lunch and I would get like gay porn movies and all of these science fiction films and I would take all these great set designs like there's like riding motorcycles on the arm of a statue in this Batman movie and possibly either using rear screen projection or green screen you could insert actors talking whatever you wanted right and you could remake a cut up version of Naked Lunch so we much closer to the actual novel than the successful in other ways version that, that Cronenberg made. Once you start interacting with the art world, this becomes like more obvious, but there's like this thing where the artists are very organically connected to like the weirder, more surreal parts of pop culture, and they see a connection between like a Planet of the Apes movie and Naked Lunch. Whereas the people who are writing about the art and curating the art and talking about it in a museum seem like they're almost going out of their way to not draw those connections, to make it look like, you know, when you come up with a strange image, you're like, oh, it's a tree with a mouth. Where could this have come from? Did you feel like when you started showing that, were you noticing that? Well, there was always that disconnect. I mean, you'd notice in reading art reviews that the art reviewers would like it when there was some reference to some art historical element that they could explain because it called upon their skills. Right. And I realized that any art historical references I put in would play in that realm. I also knew that if I had a reference to Wally Wood in a piece that they wouldn't understand it and that that would be an interesting moment of confusion. Uh, As the uh, person interviewing you, I should point out Wally Wood was a 50s and 60s mostly. They went into the 70s like a sci-fi illustrator. He did really great. He was like the most adept artist. He could do humor and horror and science fiction, but he he would just go crazy detailing spaceships and wonderfully detailed stuff. He he was the bubble helmet guy, like the best bubble helmet guy. Workaholic, alcoholic, and he ended up doing porn. Like yeah. being in it or just drawing it? Drawing it. I know he drew it. Yeah. He drew it. I thought maybe. Uh, I would think he's a little old to be in it at that point. You never know. Um, <laughs> ran off with his psychoanalyst. Everybody's quite the crazy person. These are my, my goals. Another <laughs> artist I wanted to be like was uh, Clovis Truil. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it. He's one. a French member of the Surrealist movement who worked his, all his life as a janitor and never sold his work. Too late. Sorry. Yeah, you can't live as a janitor in L.A. and survive. Yeah. Okay, so what? You, you're at home working. This mm-hmm. is like at this point you're in the 80s. I had an apartment in Silver Lake. I worked small, so that was okay. The, you're thinking about your own work. What were the ideas that were in that that you were Well, My about? Mirage was a coming-of-age tale, but it was told in a... It was like a Burroughs cut-up visually. It was Everything was a different style. It was, I, th- I saw it as my sort of postgraduate thesis. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about all these different illustrational techniques, work out a wide-ranging thing that steeped in everything from Kennedy assassination conspiracies to uh, 
hippie mysticism to uh, William Burroughs-esque writing and the Bible, mythological connections. You're always interested in these like connections and there are codes and there are references in all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Is your idea more that you're gonna you're gonna put it down and then somebody who's interested they'll decode it if they want? Or is it more like you're doing it for you to record a thought process, a web of associations, and you don't care if people decode it? What is your relationship to someone else coming on the the system of references and and looking into it? The audience always brings their own interpretation to anything, and that you can't force them into a correct interpretation. And that's why I want there to be enough information to get their attention. Like Robert Williams said, this art is like the cover of a pulp magazine to hook the person into paying attention to it. I don't want it to be super arcane, but I don't want to give it all away in the piece. And sometimes I don't ever want the actual meaning to be sussed out. Writing things in poorly translated Aramaic is one way of making things a little less obvious. If you could support yourself exactly the same way, but no one ever looked at them, would you still make them the same way? How would you support your? I don't know, but theoretically, <laughs> thought experiment. So, like, oh no, you live in Northern Europe. And they're like, oh, you're an artist, and they just give you a stipend. It's equal to the same amount. I you're would probably now. do that. I'd probably wouldn't have assistance, but yeah. So the, the audience reaction is not like a big part of your. It's part of it. To some extent, I wouldn't mind being like living on the periphery and doing art that congeals in a space and then disappears. I, I like the idea of that. Are you more into getting the idea out of your head and onto some paper yeah, or not. just looking at the thing after you've made it? Well, there's two aspects to my process, and it's I would call my process manic depressive. The manic phase is getting the ideas and having the ideas bounce off one another, and I go, oh, I see a formal relationship between this figure and that figure. I will combine them into a third thing that has all this odd stuff happening with it. Then there's the making of the actual object that involves doing this and this for a long time. So that's the depressed part. The manic part is the more fun stuff. And, you know, it'd be great if it happened all the time. And But you need the downtime of the rendering. You've got literally hundreds, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds of, like, half-finished pieces around by the house, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Do you... Work on a kind of work that matches the mood you're in at any given moment. Uh, Somewhat, but I also have deadlines. I feel you. I'm still I'm still of the generation of artists who think of their show as a statement, kind of like the Beatles introduced the album as a statement. And but we've gone into the era of downloads. Individual songs are now what drive the economics yeah. of the music. It's well, very, art yeah. fairs drive the economics of the art world. Well, the fair is kind of, it's a hyper show. Like, it's more of a show. Like, like I always think the way it should work is like, well, we're making work all the time. A different person is Googling you every day, right? So for them, that's the work. The work is whatever they Googled that day. So when we do these interviews, we don't wait for you to have a show to do an interview, which is what a magazine would do. We just do them all the time because your work is always there. You know, the only people the show is for is like, what, eight people who go to an art show. I mean, lots of people go to an art show. I hope. But the idea of an event, the show is a statement, is based on that idea that people, it's seasonal. 
And then the art fair is like that even more, where every artist only has like in December there's Miami Basel and American artists all get like seen for a second. It it seems like for most people who consume art, especially young people who are just like looking for things to look at, that's not what their life is like. But for the art market, it's like oh, it's December and oh, it's art armory show, you know, like and then in Europe it's a different. I don't know, you know, I, I have to earn a living somehow. Right. And uh, I'm stuck with the system. I hate art fairs because they always want something new. And I'm always killing myself to get the most recent show done. Yeah. And, you know, economically, I really only make money on old artwork that I already spent all the money on. Because <laughs> the new artwork, I just make about enough to pay for all my... Employees. Is it all based on the size at this That's point? That's true, too. I mean, I like these drawings are unfinished for a reason. Yeah. They take more work than a painting of the same size, and they're they sell so for less money. Made, yeah, know, but people don't care about drawings. A painting is worth more. If it was oil, it'd be worth more than acrylic, and I don't know why I don't just switch to oil for it, economic reasons. Oil <laughs> on canvas, for some reason, it's just like, oh, it's twice as much and twice as much. I like painting in oil, but so many things that I've been working on demand a... Uh, Hard edge, you know, there's there's elements that don't want to mix it up. But you're but also like, doing printing. And like if I'd like done that, that yeah. version of the origin of the world, if I'd done that in oils, it would have been faster. It would have been easier. But I've been working in acrylic for so long. That I, I don't know. I'm a big it. acrylic fan. I'm not going to give you any trouble about that. I don't know about John, but... Well, <laughs> painting like, the thighs, the thighs were so hard to paint in acrylic because it's just blending, and I'm not... Thighs are hard to paint, period. I'm not a fan of uh, that retarder stuff but it's hard in any medium to paint thighs because you have a very subtle transition i control. could handle it in oils better than acrylic i ended up having to go back with airbrush and i'm impatient okay it seems like you you like the ideas but the ditch digging work you get kind of depressed about it doesn't make me sad it's just the thing that i do instead of being sad Hmm. I get what you're saying. The political is, situation makes me depressed. It is the work that you would do on a, when you're of a different energy level. Yeah, like you, yeah. When you're manic, I'm, you're like, oh, let's grab this. I mean, and you're putting think, ideas together. When you're depressive, you're like, I'm sitting quietly and I'm making this Yeah, gray. I think you know when Mike was yeah. manic, he was really manic. And when he was depressed, he was really depressed. For me, it's not so extreme. It's a livable space. It's like what I was used to as a teenager. I had this sort of graph in my head. Oh, okay, I, I got depressed, and then I, I leveled out, and then I got depressed again. And I, it was like just this graph that was kept going down. It doesn't go down anymore, but I'm not as unhappy as I was as a teenager. I think that's true of most people. Being a teenager is probably the worst time of life. It has its downside. You're doing all right in the movie business. You're doing animations, and you're doing uh, special effects. You're making your own work at home. I'm earning a middle-class living. Cool. So when do you transition to showing? Like, how does that actually happen for you? Uh, the late 80s, I was getting more demand for having shows. How, how were people finding out about your work? I was in a group show of CalArts grads. It was in Chicago during the art fair. Art fairs. Right. Called some Skeptical Beliefs. Chicago is like very open to the sort of like cartoony illustrator. Well, it was back was... before Miami. It was like the big American art fair, really, at that yeah. time. So I got approached by two New York galleries at that time, and I was showing with this. I won't mention any names because I don't want to get sued or anything, but a local Los Angeles gallery run by a, a young CalArts graduate who was like snorting up the proceeds of his shows, who went insane during 
my show, which was the first successful show, because my theory was he never expected or wanted success. I'm a less extreme version of that. You know, getting success doesn't bear well with me, I think. It's, it just seems wrong. I'm sorry I'm interviewing you. <laughs> it just doesn't seem right. But I don't know. Well, I went to an art opening last night uh, by Friedrich Kunath, and I'm sort of waiting to say goodbye to him because I have to go to another art opening. John Hamm comes up and gives him like a bear hug and says, how you doing? And I'm like, why doesn't John Hamm come up and give me a bear hug? Maybe because my attitude is so I feel like you would be scared if I gave you a hug. Plus you have mono. That's probably why. Yeah, John Hamm doesn't know that I I don't know, maybe everyone knows. It's a L.A. rumor mill, you know? Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, so that's not part of my life is... Also, another thing was at CalArts, the theater department where we found them obnoxious. Right. They were just like outgoing and expansive. Theater people. Yeah. They were theater They're people. Always on. But we were all like, you know, depressed. Still the worst. Yeah. yeah, we were depressed and un uh, outgoing. It's all in your point of view. I'm as critical of myself, I think, as that's why I like being in the art world. I'm waiting for the bad reviews to come. <laughs> Do you still feel like you're the weirdest person around? Oh, I've met weirder people, believe me. That's a good thing about L.A., is no matter how... Well, I was in London, I was in a show with, I don't know if I should say their names, both wonderful artists, and they were so much less socialized than I was. I thought, wow, I'm the sane one here. I I feel like I got (laughs) de-socialized when I had a show in London, because the openings are at the same time, but they're on London time, which means everyone's already drunk. And they're going to bed after your opening because it's London and everything closes early. And I didn't know anyone. I spoke English. They did. I realized it was English after a while. Everything was gray and gloomy. And I had suddenly was looking at my own paintings. And I was like, I put too much gray in these paintings. The whole show just looks like super depressed. And then everybody was like, this is the last thing they're going to do before they go to bed. They get off of work at 5 p.m. They drink immediately. They don't like nap. Art opening is like 6 to 8, 9. They're almost done. So they show up and they're like, ah, everything, how you do? Oh, I love it. And I'm like, hi. And I'm like, what are you guys doing after? They're like, nothing. It's 7 p.m. We're sloshed. Like, it's over. So I was, like, more alienated in England than I had ever been anywhere else. Being, say, in France or someplace, or or Italy, hardly anybody speaks English in Italy, or at least when I first showed there. Just two people who worked at the gallery spoke English. So having an opening there was super alienating. But if you're, like, at a dinner... It's hard enough when you're at a dinner and there's more than four people. I can't understand anything in English right. because the, the cacophony of all the voices speaking. Uh, but if it's in French or whatever language, it's, it's pretty alienating. Do you have that thing where you get a sensory overload? I just have a deafness when it comes to you can't ignore the background sound. But is it unpleasant or is it just you don't get it? Because I know people who are on the spectrum who they get a sensory overload. If there's just too many people talking. Maybe I get that at the flea market. Okay. When I'm trying to discern through all this stuff. There are times when I do get a sensory overload, but it's not enough to keep me from the flea market. It's more like I'm tired of collecting shit. You're out. You're not in the middle of L.A. Where are the good flea markets? Well, I like the PCC flea market, Pasadena City College. Okay. First of all, it's in a parking structure, so you're not being burned by the sun. It has a huge record section, which I don't really go into because that would take forever. And it's fairly compact. And it's not like the Rose Bowl is so big and everything's a little more overpriced. I've been to the Long Beach one a couple times, but that's far away. So It's just a good tip for those of us in LA. That's 
useless to everyone else, I suppose. But yeah, but just I wanted the, to know. I'm finding thrift store paintings in thrift stores. The thrift store painting show. How did that come about? Well, first thing, I had a bunch of paperbacks. And I got angered when someone put out a paperback price guide where they inflated the prices of everything. And I thought, I've been collecting these paintings, and these paintings are unvaluable. You can't value a painting. It's a unique item. So I started collecting them, plus they're mostly fairly thin. You most of them are on canvas board, you can pile them up. And I had recently moved from Michigan, and you know, half the shit I wanted to bring was gonna break, you know, ceramics and stuff like that. So as a uh, pack rat, I started collecting paintings, and I kept finding more and more weird shit. At one point, Nancy Barton was running the Lace Bookstore, asked me to do Curate, curate a, show. a show. Okay. So I put together a small one that had, I had a group of 10 first ladies paintings and then a painting of Jackie Kennedy by someone else. And that was kind of the first version. So then I was asked to do a show at the Brand Library, which is an art library in Glendale, by just someone who was checking out books by me. He said, oh, you're an artist. We know your name. So that's where I decided to do the thrift store painting show originally. And they were gonna hang it, they didn't want me hanging it, so I had to come up with little titles for everything. That's how they got their titles. It was simply the simplest way to identify one painting from another. Part of that was to give credit to the That was the one that ones. had a robot choking a woman. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing it when it came out. I had gotten to be good friends with Dana Roche, working in special effects. She had been an ink and paint lady in the 60s, and uh, she was Still friends with Ed. They hadn't gotten remarried yet, but eventually they got remarried. She suggested that this show would be interesting. So he decided to do a book version of the show. So I was working with her and with Paul and Ed, and we put together this book of thrift store paintings. And I knew it was going to have the same effect on thrift store paintings as this price guide to uh, paperbacks right. had on paperbacks, but I wasn't going to say no. They're still hard to define value. But yeah, because they're unique but yeah. they're often terrible. Or you have to define the what's good in yeah. that terribleness. I had, a, for a long time, I had a night cityscape I picked up for like three bucks. And I swear to God, there's probably like some impressionist or some 50s Ashcan guy who did some of the same things in the background, but I don't know who it is. The, whoever did this, I've looked at how they did the city in the back at night, and I've totally ripped off that painting about a hundred times in different ways. I had never it's, seen the technique that they quite used on that. It's so hard to steal from those people. Eventually I started doing OS thrift store paintings and it was partly because I had a large number of people helping me, but I'd, I'd be going out of town. I was either on forced to go on vacation or I'd go to do a show somewhere. So I just go, I need to be there to supervise what people are doing if they're working on my artwork. But in this case, I thought, well, I'll just give them a one-sentence description, like a title, and then they'll make the painting. There was one by a high school student who was going to Loxa, and it was way too well painted. I'd have to like take them on the cement floor and smush them around and make sure they were all <laughs> scratched up and stuff, because otherwise they looked too new, because they're all acrylic. And that was the only way to get the like multiverse of visions. And most of the people weren't as talented, and they all went had graduate degrees in art, but you know, they didn't know how to render things. Or they didn't care that or much for the purpose that of that show. Yeah. The high school kids like knocked himself out because it's a big deal. Yeah. So, but the, by that time you were already showing, you were already known as an artist because yeah. it was like 10 years in probably, right? Well, it was my first show at Metro Pictures. I've been, I had a couple of shows at Feature. So the first actual show I did at Metro was the thrift store painting show. So does that mean that the thrift store painting show kind of kicked your career up? Hard to say. 
Hard to say. I can't remember which came first, the Whitney Biennial or the Thrift Store Painting Show. I think the Whitney Biennial may have preceded the... Or they might have been at the same time. It was like a 90s biennial? Or yeah, 2000? early, it was like 91, maybe. I don't know whether odd or even years. Or even years. And it had an influence that right. I was, like, shocked by. Yeah. yeah. Someone said that Ellsworth Kelly was in there looking at the paintings, and I thought, why the hell would Ellsworth that Kelly... minimalist, I could, maximalist I could understand thing, right? David Byrne being in there looking at the paintings, but I, I didn't understand why a big muckety-muck in the art world would would be there. Somebody was on here during the Jane Dixon one, and it turns out he had a huge graffiti art collection, and it was somebody else who did, like, super simple, dry paintings on their own. Um, Solowit? Maybe it was Solowit? I can't wow. remember. Well, because um, he does wall art, wall guess, drawings. I right. Guess. Some are very brightly colored. They are, but they're the whole different side of the spectrum. You were showing in the, by the 90s. You were looking at your work, and you've got these codes and these ideas, conspiracies, narratives, woke. Narratives, in there. yeah. It's fun to say narrative. Well, narrative was um, the thing that set me apart in some ways from most of the art world. Were people like, oh, there's narrative, and that was kind of interesting to them? Like, how is it being received from what you could tell? Oh, this is weird. Was it Peter Sheldahl wrote a thing in the Village Voice saying, maybe this is the next big thing, and it was about me? I wasn't the next big thing. But narrative was, in a sense, the next big thing at that time, or like a return to paintings with stuff in them. Because I remember I, I was a, well, I was there, you know, there were other the artists time. before me that had stuff in like David True, Sally. And but David Sally always looked like he had some stuff, and then he thought of some other stuff and also put it on the picture. Whereas your stuff always seemed like it was trying to communicate a message. Sally was almost like a rebus. There was a, this image and that image. They were not connected, or they could be. It was felt a little removed and intellectualized. Whereas at that time, I feel your work would have struck viewers as you were trying very hard to tell us something or, or get something across in a way that he wasn't. Well, I kind of feel like I could do the same thing with no meaning, but I wouldn't be able to do it. You wouldn't be, you yeah, wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't be dedicated to it. But I also, I also think at that time, a lot of things I got from people was like, uh, oh, I have a cousin who's really into your, you know, I have a nephew that's really into your work. I have, my son is really into your work. Male relatives. Yeah, work. it's like I'm like, <laughs> of people, I'm like, but the, not people. like, sort of like Salvador Dali, a gateway drug to the art world. Uh -huh. And, you know, most people get over their interest in Salvador Dali. I never really did. Uh, you know, they get over their interest in pop art and they end up being cerebral and dry and doing the same thing over and over again in some other way, and I never did that. So you were like the fancy spaghetti. Most people are, are especially people that didn't go to art school, they're, they're looking for a narrative all the time. You know, they always want to say, like, what's the story here? I've met people that look for a narrative in Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Art critics are also looking for a narrative in Jackson Pollock. It's just a different narrative, yeah. a different I, kind. I think the, the sequences of the art teacher in Ghost World are one of the best summations mm, totally. of art education where they take the thing that the person's really pouring their energy into which is their sketchbook and believe me I've looked at a lot of sketchbooks and a lot of them have a lot of imagery and, and, and energy in them and they tell them that you know well this is immature crap and you should grow up and put a tampon in a teacup and there was this image when we were at CalArts that at Art Center because it was a professional school that some of the teachers would like take people's artwork and like break it over their leg or something like they the, there's a real passive aggressive way that 
most art schools work, which is, you know, well, yes, but they just don't talk about it. I had a student at CalArts who was doing some stuff that was not very good, and I always try to be very positive, and, and he was from another country, and I asked him, well, what do they say about your work in crit classes? And he said, oh, they don't talk about my work. Because he was from another culture, they didn't feel free to criticize it, but they just didn't talk about it. So he wasn't really getting an education. It's weird how many art teachers can demonstrate no sense of responsibility toward a student just because they know they'll, that student will never make their kind of art. They're just dicks to them. They're, they don't give them their money's worth in a certain sense. I it's think. hard to give them their money. Well, first of all, like George Andine once said something to the effect, well, you know, only like 2% of them are ever going to amount to anything. That's probably true. Right, but I mean, you still want to give them something, yeah, you know what I mean? The art world has changed a lot since I wanted to be an artist as a teenager. You know, like, nobody made a living as an artist in the 70s. You know, like, three people made a living as an artist as There's the a 70s. whole movement about being poor and an artist. It was an expectation that you would be poor. It was like a, taking a vow of poverty to go to art school, and art school was cheaper then. But one thing there also wasn't at the time was the equivalent of an orchestra. You could go to study violin, and uh, you could still be in an orchestra. But there was nothing like that. But now there is. It's computer graphics. There is an actual functional use for your art degree if you know how to do various computer things, if you can do computer animation or layout, Photoshop, etc. So that has broadened out. An art world has become an actual place of employment, which it never was before, as uh, the computer has ended a lot of old kind of jobs. It's created a small number of jobs in the realm of uh, design and culture that employs, you know, there's a lot of names go by on those films. Yeah, when that's a good point. Orchestras keep musicians employed and like movies keep people with certain esoteric art skills employed. Like yeah. nearly everybody we interview has a job right out of college that ends up feeding into their art somehow, like some weird semi-creative. Like Jane Dixon used to program the graphics of the Times Square electronic readout, and she was like, yeah, it was kind of pointillism, you know, oh, little really? dots. You're making these maximal things full of imagery and full of narrative, to some degree in opposition to it, on a field of art where things are increasingly dry and simple and minimal in a lot of ways, or intellectualized. But then when you move over to appropriated pictures, like in the thrift store show, you're almost kind of becoming more of a conceptual artist during those shows, or you just, your idea was like, I'm showing those people's art. Yeah, I'm a curator, right. in my mind. I I'm assume not those guys work. never made, you didn't find them and go, oh, here's your $3,000 for your painting. That didn't happen, right? Well, I got a phone call from a guy who was in the book saying, uh, should I sue you or should I... Uh, asked for a copy of the book. So I said, I'll give you a copy of the book. And it was a piece that actually Roche insisted on putting in the book. Mm -hmm. I was against it because I thought it was too well painted. Mm. He was a painter who lived in the same building that Lily St. Cyr had an apartment in. I don't know who that is. She was a stripper who had a store called The Undie World of Lily St. Cyr for bras and underwear. I didn't know that much about underwear history. And, uh, now I do. So this guy... I went over, I talked to him for a bit. He said that it was the painting had been in, given to his niece, and she said it had been stolen. Who knows? Then he asked if I was familiar with the paintings of Rene, 
what's her last name? She was a gangster's mall who starred in a John Waters film. And she did these sort of naive paintings that were pretty interesting. And I was couldn't afford the 200 bucks or whatever you wanted with them. But then when I was curating the show in New York, I was borrowing some things from a designer. And his boyfriend asked me if I'd ever seen any of Renee, what's her name's paintings. And I said, well, I know someone who's got one for sale. So I arranged that sale for the guy. Nice. Like a real curator. Yeah. There was another time the show was up in Hawaii and they used this painting of a woman in a barrel on the card and someone said, I know this woman, she lives here in Hawaii. I gave her the painting back. I think the other painting actually belonged to a friend, so I couldn't give the guy his painting back, it didn't belong to me. But she was having a visitor who was the person she had given it to come to visit, so she was gonna entrap her by saying, oh, there's this interesting show at the Honolulu News and Advertiser building. And I was never there for it, but I thought that would be a good video to get. But those paintings didn't get it sold. They were just part of the show. Well, eventually, I sold the bulk of the paintings to a collector. They'd come back from a show, and they were literally spilling out of our basement, and we're going to get rained on. Because originally in New York, Saatchi, the collector, wanted to buy them, and I said no. It was probably because it was Saatchi, but it was also because I had given all these interviews where I said, oh, no, I never saw them. But they hadn't become such a burden that but you point. did eventually sell them. Yeah, plus I had a fucking subprime mortgages that kept going up and up and up. Oh, God, the now, crunch. How many paintings did you have at its peak? At about that point, it was about 160, and I kept adding to it. I, I felt guilty, so I kept giving the collector more. It's a uh, collector in Belgium who was like my first big collector. I've got a few more here. You, yes, you do. Yeah, that I've collected since. Shiva? Looks like her Krishna down there. Yeah, she's got many arms. So I went against my word and I sold them and uh, paid my mortgage. Nice. In the face of the crunch, it's fair. Well, there were many crunches. Right. This uh, was an earlier crunch, the yeah. mid-90s crunch. I've weathered many crunches. I understand them. It's like when the stock market crash happened. It was partly because the people in the stock market world hadn't lived through any crash. They believed Wired magazine that it was going to go on forever. I'm just waiting for the next bubble. But I guess all the regulations that were put in under Obama have made it a very, it's not really a bubble, it's just a recovery. So it really needs to be a bubble to pop. Yeah, this is That's just what Donald will bring about. Pudding. We're waiting for the, the, pudding the tax Pudding slowly breaks. rising, maybe, or sinking, I don't know. Well, yeah, it's also something that's only affected the elites and not the average Joes back in the Midwest. It's rough out there. It's. When you think about the political and social ideas in your work, do you think, like, I'm thinking about these things, and this motivates me to get a picture done because I'm connecting the dots for myself? Yeah, I do. And you think, but when other people see them, they're just seeing a riot of images. Like, yeah. And you're like, eh, that's, that's I got the way my it's gonna interpretation, be. they've got theirs. Right. And so when they ask you, do you feel like that's like a, a false impulse? You're like, why are you asking me? Just look at it. Or do you feel like, which, no, I'll explain. Which is the false impulse? Though. Wanting to know your interpretation. No, that's fine. I don't even know my interpretation. There was like a one piece that had to do with something extremely personal. And I didn't even get it until like a year later. Because mm. it was out of a dream. And a lot of times I'm, I'm working on a body of work for a show. And there'll be a couple of pieces that just kind of spring to my mind while I'm working on other ones I've been working on for a very long time. Some of those ones are... They're a little underbaked, maybe. So I don't fully understand why I did them. And there are elements of the show at the Marciano Foundation 
I can't define exactly the moment when I decided that I should have British pederasts prominently displayed in it. You know, clearly I can say it has to do with the abuse of power, because it clearly does. It happened, I don't know. I'm sort of waiting for someone to connect me to the Comet Ping Pong pizza scandal because I'm dealing with the same things they think are going on in the basement. Uh, I'm not in favor of pederasty, but... uh, That's good to know. I'm using it as a thematic element in the works. Do people ever get offended by your paintings? Probably. But I mean, it's not—it's never been a thing in your career or your work where you notice. You could offend people so easily now true. with social media. True, but the I'm, thing is, like, some people do so much, it becomes an element in their story of their uh, career. And some people don't, and I get the feeling that your pictures are so dense with imagery that no single image, like, comes out and offends a certain parent's group. I mean, if they knew the true meanings behind things, they might be more offended. Right. I'm innately a little reserved. Uh, when I was a little kid, I was in the Rochester History Museum, Historical Museum, and there was a painting of a Native American wearing like a little loincloth, running away from other Indians who were shooting him in the back with arrows. So he had blood dripping down his back. And I would like, for years, I'd be walking down the street and that image would f- flash in my head and I'd go, ah, ah, I'd be upset. It kind of happens in um, Binky Brown meets the Holy Virgin Mary. He sees this painting of guys getting scalped and he'll be walking it's same thing happened to him anyway i did his paintings for a record that never came out in michigan that was by the band detroit it was called it's a dog eat dog world mm-hmm. and one of them was of a, a big-eyed animal in the style of gig who was the big-eyed animal painter and the other one was in the style of those dogs playing poker yeah rugs but it was uh, dogs sitting around a stuffed dog mm-hmm. and the gig one, the dog had a smaller dog in his mouth. And I had this in the Ann Arbor Art Fair. I had like a cheap booth in the sort of renegade part. And this little kid saw it and he thought it was cute and then he realized what it was and he went, you know, that was not my intention and I never wanted to do those kinds of things. Or one time my first LA gallerist had a booth at the art fair and he had this little sculpture of the Virgin Mary pulling a Steve Bannon and giving herself a blowjob. And I thought, you know, if this was in his gallery, that would be an okay thing. But doing it in this place that just sort of everyday people wander in and out of, it's not so okay. There's a difference. Yeah, I mean, it cuts both ways. The art world can make something more offensive by putting it in the public eye, or it can make it less offensive by being like, oh, we're it's art world. world. It's It's the art world. It's like, oh, I saw Piss Christ. It was in a show that Mike was in, a traveling show. And I thought, gee, that's a really beautiful photograph. What is that? Why? You know, why is this here? It's, it's beautiful, but what? And I didn't read the label. Yeah, and it's that, just a, it's a, that, it's a that golden... That show had been like, going yellow, around yeah. for like a year before some Christian walked up, read the label, and got outraged. Right. So it's the, the art world context is like, big deal. The guy's driving a nail through his penis. That's yeah. no big deal. But, you know, if you got any funding for it and put it on PBS, and suddenly it becomes a different deal. Yeah, you're waiting for that person who will... I'm not waiting for no. him, but... Conspiracy. Are you a, a Thomas Pynchon guy? I tried to be, but I'm more of a William Burroughs guy. Okay. I don't have time to read anything but research, basically. So when did you start having assistance? The first time I had was like in the early 90s. It was just before the riots. Oh, I literally, so relatively early on. I, said, I had an African-American assistant, and I said, 
I've just driven across town from Beverly Hills and it's looking pretty ugly out there. So I think you should go home. And that was like the last day that my first two assistants worked on anything. You don't see them anymore? I see them occasionally. She got a job at LACMA and uh, he was working for, uh, oh, he became like some kind of a game designer or something like that. A lot of that going around. Married to some beautiful woman who worked at Gagosian. That was for like a year, maybe. They were doing tracing for me for the most part. What are some jobs that assistants do? Well, initially, the next assistant I got did only carpentry because I'm terrible. I'm a terrible carpenter. Well, Jessica like, answers emails. And oh, we have your office things. assistants who yeah. do like chores, but like in terms of like making the stuff. Making the stuff, usually it's tracing or underpainting in some cases, other cases. It started ramping up when I was doing large drawings like that one because that's like the biggest thing in terms of getting repetitive motion pain. Yeah. I was uh, flying to Paris and a couple of days earlier I had a crick in my neck and, and on the airplane it started moving from here slowly down through the nerve system. There was a pinched nerve in my neck and I was just like in utter pain so I realized I needed to have people work on those things a bit more than just tracing the basic outlines. So eventually they got to the point where people were working on them doing like the under 75% and I would do the final 25%. And then I started doing these giant paintings on backdrops and I needed a crew to do that. So in 1990, whatever, well, I don't know when you started having people like that, but were you worried that people wouldn't want them as much? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't have as many assistants as a lot of people. Sure. I did at one point back in the zeros. I was selling, you know, oh, I need something for an art fair and people would buy it. And I was like in the 1% for a brief period of time mm -hmm. there. But, you know, so much of the money, I was like, I wanted to have assistance because I didn't want to be paying directly into the Iraq war. So there was a lot of trickle down happening. And right. some of them were working on my wife's stuff. There was a lot of sanding involving in, in, in anything that was a sculpture. So there were some people who were just like troubled kids of friends that were working. Yeah. Not necessarily skilled. Had a lot artists. of runaways, personally, like a little home for yeah. runaway art students. Yeah, and then some of them would marry a movie star and others didn't. And that is pretty much, yeah, how it goes. <laughs> or a comedian. A comedian. Well, a TV star, though. Okay. You have a two artist household. Yeah. What's that like? How long has that been going on, also? Well, since we've been together, but she was doing long, art. How long is oh, that? Uh, well, we're coming up on our 25th anniversary, oh, so about beautiful. 27 years. So what's it like having a two-artist household? There are times when it's rough, like n neither of you have any money. Because you gave I'm, it to all the assistants. I mean, that's what you're making it sound like. That's my wife thinks. It's true. I mean, I realize I cannot take a break. And I, with mono, I really need to take a break. But I've got people who work for me, you know, as their so main So have you ever job. done the math of like, okay, let's say I made less pieces for shows and fairs and I had less people working for me. Would I be basically in the same? Probably in about the same place. I'd be a little happier, but you know, I, I have more ideas than I can actually produce even with assistance. You know, as someone who didn't have anybody interested in their work for 20 years, it's kind of nice when people want it. You've had support from these galleries. You don't want them to suffer by just saying, oh, I don't feel like making art right now. But at the moment, I wish I could take a month off and just watch TV shows. So you're a victim of your own success. Yeah, I can't complain too much because most of the friends of my age, I mean, I know some fucking genius artists who can't get a gallery. I know plenty of like normal artists who can't get a gallery. 
But I mean, the fact that I know like two like definably, what's the Japanese term? The living treasures and they don't have galleries. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's that kind of economy. Well, also LA is like a shitty place to be an artist. It's yes. like being in the art world is a shitty place to be an artist if you're not represented by one of the top three or four galleries. It's partly the success of the art world that's gotten, it's like the price of an artwork is so high now that there aren't very many people who can pay it. And a lot of the people who can pay it certainly are not serious collectors. And some of them are criminals, you know, or they're people who inherited a chunk of some country, you know, or took a chunk of some country and they want to spend crazily on artwork. You know, if my painting sells for $60,000, that's well outside of the ability of anybody outside of, even in the 1%, if you're, you know, because that's like a $250,000 a year income, that's not much in LA. That's middle class in LA. In the Midwest, it's a lot of money, but... You don't get into the special haunted hayride <laughs> line with the just $250,000 Nobody a gives a shit about artists as far as being a celebrity in L.A. Mike was bitter about that. You know? Mike ever like, I should be a celebrity artist. Yeah, yeah. He thought, because in Europe, he'd be treated with respect. But in L.A., if you're not in showbiz, it's like... You're it is interesting, like, when you can see artists in their element, you know, when they're somewhere where they should be recognized. Mike Kelly, you know his face. Like, his face is in his work, you know? You go to an art fair, and you're like, ah, people are recognizing me. In L.A., it's like you're the lowest. You're right above poets, right below ballet dancers, you know? Yeah, but there's also, like, a thing where, like, I know one, I want to know a couple of celebrities, and I know one celebrity, he's a very, very smart guy, but if people are sitting around talking about art, he's like, I don't understand this. He's like, he feels, like, left out of the conversation. But if you talk about music, <laughs> you know, he's in there. He's not alienated from it. So what Shepard Ferry is a DJ. I've been to a party where Shepard Ferry was DJing. I looked up a picture of him before I went to the party just to make sure I would be like, if I see him, I'll say uh. The art world is alienating to most people out there. Like when I worked in special effects, I would yes. try to get the people that I worked with to come to my shows and they were afraid to because they didn't you know, think they were going to understand. They don't get the verbiage and they don't get why this thing that's a white panel is worth a million dollars and it's, it's alienating to them. But I also find, like, at least among the people who do participate, there are a lot of people who are, like, directors or producers. They're in the film business, and they kind of look at artists, and they kind of get it, and they're impressed by the scam of it. They're like, you didn't have to make anyone like this. Like, you didn't have to, like, get 90,000 people to come look at it. You didn't have to dumb it down. You didn't have to make it popular at all, and you just made something you wanted to. I'm, like, very impressed. There is a class of people in L.A. who are, like, kind of crappy creative for a living, and they like art because they're like, whoa, you made, you just made a thing. I mean, you have a really shitty house, but you just made a thing, and they're kind of like, good job. Yeah, yeah, there's always that. <laughs> like, there was always the idea that there was a certain con involved in conceptual art, right. I guess. It's got con right in the name. Right, right. Of course, no one was getting rich on that originally. They were getting rich teaching only. jobs. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Baldessari's made a pretty good income for himself uh, right but, but not originally right yeah not until i mean the late it is is one of those things where like the time where you make the art that was hard to make 20 years later people go oh you made all this art you know like now you're an eminence but during the time when you wanted everyone to care about it you're just plugging away alone i like being anonymous because i have a low self-esteem you know well I'm, still, again i'm, I'm sorry still, i was I'm jealous you. of the guy that was getting the bear hug from 
<laughs> John Hamm, right? You know? I think you're convincing me to just keep making comic books and that's it. This, this is the pep talk I'm getting. No, because you, you interview comic book people, they're like even worse. They're like, my wife left me and I'm an oh, alcoholic. Oh, they got fucked over. I mean, and I, they, I, they don't do an interview because they don't have time. They're like, right. I gotta do eight pages of fucking Flash before noon. I guess yeah. Ramona Faden said that she left comics right before they upped the page rate, but... The stuff that I glory over, all the Silver Age and earlier, those guys got paid shit. But even the people who are getting paid well, you're either working constantly, have no life, and you get paid a decent page rate, but then they stop doing comics and then they move over to just doing covers and stuff. Or the convention sketches. Yeah, they end up getting paid well to do something that isn't really what they wanted to do in the first place. So it's kind of a weird bargain. You know, like I know a great storyboard people or great concept art people. And you look at their shit and you go, oh, this would make an amazing comic. But they'll never make a comic because they can't afford to spend that much time and not get paid. You know, like it's like Frazetta did so few comics and he did so many covers. Supposedly he hated painting. He would have loved to do comics, but taking the time it would take to do a Frazetta comic is just like too much time for the economy. I like drawing, but between the shoulder pain and the fact that it sells for less than a painting and doesn't sell that quickly. It's a cruel mistress. I mean, these drawings are so detailed. Yeah, it's problematic. It's easier to do a painting in which the bulk of it was either before I was doing splatter paintings or now it's like a piece of a backdrop. I don't have to paint the entire surface of the painting. And thus, my arm doesn't seize up. I can focus on the specifics I'm interested in. It seems like you're really interested in... So we were talking about the grotesque earlier. The grotesque is kind of where abstraction turns into a representation. Someone's face starts melting, and the melt part is just an abstraction, and their face is a representation. You're interested in that transition point where something that's real has become so damaged that it becomes abstract. Well, what made grotesques controversial was that they weren't rational, that things that were vegetable became human or animal. And in an era of increasing rationality, that was like a weird little thing. Do you think that's still an anxiety people have? I don't know. I mean, Somewhere you know, in there? Certainly it provokes anxiety in a David Lynch or a Cronenberg film. We went to see the David Lynch uh, retrospective uh, in Philadelphia, and I hadn't really understood how much he was borrowing from Bacon. Mm. Yeah. But if you like look at the like the talking uh, tree in the new yeah. show, is, or, or there was a the, there was a creature, the blurry monster, the blurry monster that that chopped up Francis. the naked couple in the first episode. Yeah, it was totally Bacon. Bacon. Nice to see that. So that's like a. A thing that you're interested in. David Lynch. The grotesque. grotesque. Well, David Lynch, I think, was like the... You know, art had a place showing narratives once upon a time, and he's one of the people who's, I think, one of the most effective artists in the present. He's showing narratives, but he's also still maintaining an artistic aspect to it. Like, the new series has has some amazingly long takes. Yeah. Ten minutes of driving in the dark. Literally 10 minutes of driving in the dark, no dialogue. That's- Although I find that like it's really easy to watch them because I'm watching on my computer and I'm just like, oh, and I'll check my email while they're driving in the dark. And I'm like, that is a weird thing in TV because if that was in a movie, 
we would all be like, fuck this movie. Yeah, you put a take that's ones. too long in a movie, and you can be like, that scene might be too long. You put it in a TV show, and I'm like, whatever, it's well, there fine. Are, there are no 18-hour movies, or there are a few, but Fast you're not meant to actually sit through them. Right. But I'm wondering how much like prestige TV gets away with these like really long series. Only his. But no, but if you look at even the the super soap operatic stuff in some of the other like fancy shows, it's like they're not as arty, but like there'll be a whole episode of Game of Thrones where nothing really happens. But I think part of it is they're counting on you're not paying that much attention. Like you tune out and go do something in your house because it's TV. Not sex? A lot of times, no. Like really? a lot of times, there'll be like a whole. It's just like two people talking about something that will pay off in three or four. It episodes. was like there was sex in the first episode of the new Twin Peaks, and then there wasn't really not much. I think but, usually what they say on the, for these like expensive TV shows is we put all the boobs up front, which is what God decided as well. So it's like a long well, tradition. It's, uh, usually in it's the a Bible, mix. there's it's the nudity is in the front. It's, it's, a a, it's a mix, and usually if it's on Showtime or HBO, it's gotta have. But they're X usually in the beginning, and then once you're in, you're like, ah, oh, you're in. It's placed throughout. There's a guy who did a graph actually, it, it, like the breasts per episode of the, of Game of Thrones. And usually, if it's an out, more senior actress, there's you don't see their breasts. If a younger actress, you do see their breasts. It's there's a. It's it's definitely a legitimate it, representational but, strategy. It's weird. It's it's interesting, like to have a show like that with no sex or violence. I mean, eh, the election of Donald Trump. Is there a show got, with no sex or violence got, aside from a? You comedy? got Donald Trump is like the logical thing that happens after Tony Soprano and Don Draper. These guys are like ultra alpha males who get away with shit over and over again. But we finally got to the point where nobody cared enough. You know that that he was clearly a con artist, and I mean, they, I get the they, feeling they, that nobody really, cares that anyone is a con I mean, artist. Like, I think it's ago, just a total cynicism. Years ago, uh, Howard Stern wanted to run for president, but he was afraid of the financial disclosures. He hadn't done the study that Donald Trump's lawyers had done and said, "Oh, you don't actually have to make any." You know, so we got Donald Trump instead of Howard Stern, who probably would have been a much better president. Probably, yeah. I mean, he knows how to delegate. I don't think he <laughs> holds a grudge. I, w- I was reading a, a biography by a member of Blondie of Aleister Crowley. He sure sounded like Donald Trump. He was from a wealthy family, but not a member of the aristocracy, as Donald Trump was from a wealthy family, but not from Manhattan. You know, the fortune only went back one generation. So, I, you know, I think like Anderson Cooper is like his mortal enemy as a, you know, an inherited member of... Mm. Manhattan elite money. <laughs> and he was sort of like a self-declared genius with very little patience to actually like succeed academically or in any other normal way. He really held grudges, severely held grudges. So those are three. three. I think L. Ron Hubbard kind of fits the same. I don't know if he was from a, a wealthy background. So but it's otherwise, a cult leader profile. I don't know that, I mean, the guy had acolytes, but he didn't have like a mass cult. I did hear that all the people around him uh, that he's closest to, that he listens to, that he keeps around, don't talk about anything but him. They really seem to be personalities that are obsessed with him as a person way more than their own hobby horse, except the ones who are like smarter than him that are trying to use him to push forward a specific issue. It's weird that uh, two of his close advisors, one Mnuchin and uh, was a producer of 
of movies like the Lego Batman film and uh, Suicide Squad. I don't know if he's on any of the other DC comics. And then he did Wonder Woman. Did a pretty good job on that. Yeah. I hear the biography of the creator is kind of half-assed. But yeah, it's a great story. But then one of his non-appointees, but one of his close advisors, is the head of Marvel Entertainment. Yeah. It's amazing how much the Marvel stories and, to some lesser extent, the DC characters are always fighting against the government and the establishment. And Well, they're by artists who are getting underpaid. The people who write and draw comics are, as we've pretty well established, like one or two degrees of separation from the disaffected bohemians who are making fine art. And they're, they have the same shit in their head. But no one cares and no one's paying attention to the narratives because they're for kids. And so they put in this stuff that is, from their point of view, it, sometimes it's half-assed or phoned in, but it's like expressing opinion. You know, they spent $200 million to make the movie version of it. The opinion of the creative class. And then it gets turned into a movie by wealthy people that they're complaining about, which is like a microcosm of how all art works, I guess. Artists come up with ideas that are very anti-establishment, and then no one listens to them until they're amplified by people who are just money pigs. Yeah, I went to the premiere of Johnny Mnemonic because yeah. uh, people from Metro were there. It was Longo directed. And the last person got up to talk about the film was a producer on the film, and he took time out to praise Sony Pictures because they had this corporate interlink with video games and all music, etc. It was a great synergy. And then the movie starts, and the first thing is this title crawl that says, it's the year 2021, and the corporations control everything. (laughs) Right. Uh, I don't know if you know Longo, but did he seem like he was like, wah, wah, about that? Or is he just like, I got my movie made? Like, what was... He he got his movie made. Yeah. He wasn't talking anymore. He seemed like he'd had a few drinks, but I don't know. I I met him, but I don't He's not a personal friend. That's why I feel like L.A. artists, for all the bullshit of being an L.A. artist... All art, in the end, you can go to an art show that day, or you can go to a movie that day. You can watch TV that day. So every time you go see an art show, you are still in competition with the bigger culture. And L.A. artists are kind of right up against it. The the problem that all artists have to face, which is how do I make a person look at a thing that isn't moving and is trying to maybe communicate something very complicated, if it's even trying to communicate... How do I put that up against all these things that people could do the rest of their time? And the L.A. artists are like looking it right in the face every day because that could be their other job. or That's their sister's job. If I was young and I knew how to program computers, I would be doing that. I would be trying to find a way to earn a living with something on the Internet because that has to be some kind of a future for the arts. It has to be a world where you don't have to live in an expensive city like L.A. or New York or London to be an artist. And I have no idea how that's going to happen. It's n- certainly not going to happen in the way that, like, being a Gagosian artist uh, gets gazillions of dollars and movie stars love them. That's never going to happen. Is your daughter making art? She wants to write and direct films and act in them. Oh, okay. So she's got one more year of high school. She's going to go off to college because she's a member of the elite. And Is she the one writing the paper about the horror movies? Yeah. And then you'll miss it. I won't miss the waking up. I'll miss something, but I'm not going to miss the waking up at 6.20. She's not going to miss that either. <laughs> I want to ask about Oism. Okay, well, it's an ongoing thing I keep working on. You when know. did you get the idea? When did it start? Uh, somewhere in the 90s. I had this idea that it would be interesting to make up a religion and then do an art show about it. Mm-hmm. 
and be about the aesthetics of that that were guided by that. But then I started taking it a little more seriously in the mid-90s. I started doing more and more research. And What were you looking to research for? I was looking at self-made American religions. Like Mary Beaker Edie and like... Yeah, or uh, the Mormons, Mormons the yeah. Scientologists. It, were there any patterns that you felt like were... Uh, established or things that sure. they all had in common like well pretty much they all had a charismatic leader and they all had a vision that they were able to articulate enough to get followers and eventually they had to compromise scientology hasn't made their compromise yet yeah I think they're that's gonna a big, have to that's a big theme in harold bloom's book about the american religion about how like every strain of christianity they used to be scientology essentially yeah well, like, like it was like, this uh, mutant thing and then but after about 50 the years 20s, it becomes part in the of 20s uh, Christian science was considered a dangerous radical thing and right. now it's just like you know this thing for old people yeah and the same thing with Mormonism it used to be just this like super extreme crazy radical, radical thing. thing and now it's just like more Christians you know they're for, very conservative in their own ways yes yeah but they also are very socialist so what does that tell you about oism I wanted it to be a little like different but it, I realized eventually that you cannot fully escape the Bible if it's American. But I wanted to introduce theosophical stuff to get some Eastern influences, but also upstate New York, where most of these things came from, was also where feminism was born in America. It was where the, the burnover district, where the, the anti-slavery people were, and spiritualism, and the Fox sisters were all coming out of there. So it's kind of a melange of all these things. And then it was an excuse that the real problem is, like, our band right now is four guys it's kind of losing some of its feminist aspect but uh, you know what can you do so I'm working on the opera and this is like a byproduct of working on the opera the CD actually, well, actually none of the things that actually could be used in the opera are on here because I might actually use them in the opera so there's going to be an opera that's presented I hope so that's I mean it's the hardest thing to do because I turn to music because in art I am well too I have an overeducated hand and in music, I have a severely undereducated abilities. Well, I, oh, yeah, when you're talking about thrift store paintings, I want to talk about, like, bad stuff, bad painting. You're like, some of these paintings are too good. We didn't want them. What's good about bad from your point of view? Depends on the bad. Put well, what's together. bad about good? Like, I was, what are I some was up in, up in Santa Barbara, and someone said, oh, you got to look at this guy's collection. He's got, like, 150 paintings in his attic. And I went there, and there wasn't a single one that I found interesting. So I'm not sure why he picked those ones. I always look for things that are a fucked up version of Americana mm -hmm. or uh, it has some sort of psychological pathos or psychosis. A lot Something of them are psychedelic comes through or in the surreal. It's not so much the technique. or right? Sometimes it's the lack of technique that aids the, the pathos. Sometimes when you don't know the rules of, say, one-point perspective, you've never been taught that, but you've seen it and you're trying to figure it out and your take on it you know, is unique. It's always interesting. Or if they don't know, like, proportions of the face. Yeah. So they've seen other people do it and they're trying to imitate it without, you know, having gone to art school, like their own approach to it. Well, that's one of the things about my own work is that I know those things and I know when it's wrong. I, I don't know all the things about perspective, you know. I don't know all the science of it. But I try to get it right because perspective is a very scientific thing and you know it when you see it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's, unless it's really wrong, at a certain point it's like like Fancinelli, in Images of the City, it's there, it's wrong, but in a knowing way. Or what, Alice Neal, you know, it's wrong, but in a knowing way. 
I always end up being right. That's why I like to have a photograph to work from. Because that's the easiest thing to paint. It takes time, but you've always got a reference material. Trying to make something up out of whole cloth is more difficult. So you just feel like the, the range of things you can say is not better, it's just different if you don't have that. When you purposefully go into a naive mode, like you're trying to do music where you don't have an educated hand, what are you hoping you'll get out of it? A more direct connection to creativity, basically, okay. I would say. I mean, the other people in the band are much more versed, but I don't know if any of them can read and write music. It's fun when you don't know what you're doing. I always yeah. say this, like, what's it going to be? I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing. It's really interesting. You surprise yourself. My neighbors uh, used to be a pair of concert violin and violists, and they sold their place to uh, a drummer in a really great indie rock band. And people like that are like, probably look at this shit. and like, God, what a fucking amateur. And I don't know. It's more fun? Yeah, for me, it's like, it's fun, and I don't know what I'm doing, and things evolve out of it. The number of things that could potentially surprise you if you literally don't know what you're doing are probably way bigger than the number of things if you have an educated hand. Like, even if you're just making a chair, yeah. like, if you just go, oh, wait, I could do it like this, you've discovered, like, five things at once, whereas if you know what you're doing already, you can discover, like, one thing. The amount of things you can discover per hour is probably a lot bigger in a field where you know nothing. Yeah, true. Know? It's like being so, five. Yeah. Right. Another thing is that I can't articulate the things I want in a composition musically other than to hum it or try yeah. to like tap it out on something. I can sing a, a composition, but every time we've tried to work that way, yeah. it just hasn't worked. So we've been doing this other thing, which is just improvising, which has created unknown pleasures. It's interesting to me. I enjoy listening to it, which is not true of most noise music I've been involved with. I enjoy performing it, but listening to it back is another thing. Although, in the editing process, I listen to this so many times that You're I don't, probably real sick don't of it listen now, to yeah. it that much now. But, you know, sometimes I put it on in the car, and there's only one cut I'm not happy about, and that's the one that has too much spoken word on it. Partly because my <laughs> voice sounds screwy to me, because there's much more bass in my voice when I talk, and I hear myself back. Jessica could probably explain why that is. Well, I think I know. It's everybody your, your, thinks your head reverber like reverberates, yeah. so it comes out real nasal when it's actually recorded without adding in. Seems like you have tremendous things. gravitas from where I'm sitting. Your voice just. <laughs> if I have a cold, sometimes I have a very deep voice. But yeah. we did everything. We did. We we did a lot. All right. Was, I could sing. I could do some. I'll sing backwards. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can sing a long time that way because you're breathing in. I do a lot of weird shit that I'm surprised nobody else does. I mean, you can do all kinds of things to your voice, and it's rare that anybody does that. The Christian Vander from Magma did a lot of it. Mm. David Byrne does a certain amount, but... You can get a square way of going that's kind of nice, like but you kind of have to. Yeah, you have to kind of uh, warm up to it. But I wish I could yodel like what a. What was real that device you made that kept feeding you air? Oh yeah, well you know CPAP for sleeping. Oh yeah. Yeah, so I, I have a CPAP because I have sleep apnea, and I realized you can just constantly get air coming out of your mouth and not have to breathe. So I wrote a piece for CPAP where I just said uh, um, unvoiced consonants for as long as possible. So like a, a P or a T or something like that, just held for an 
an amount of time that you wouldn't otherwise be able to hold it. Well, in Oism, in the history of Oism, they use uh, crystals to weaponize their singing voices. So they utilize like O is the big one, but A right. and E. And I, so the crystals and, are like the amplifiers. Yeah, like and they, they uh, destroy their own civilization through this power, uh, which I borrowed from Atlantis, the Lost Continent. So I use, uh, I, I do a variation on Old MacDonald where they do the E-I-E-I-O, but it's called Old, o- Old O'Leary Had a Cow. And it's for the, the third movement, which is all about fire. We might be forced to perform in Miami during the art fair, in which case we'll oh, be yeah. doing the second movement, which is about the water apocalypse. Makes sense. I've realized now I want it to end in a sound bath, and I don't know if you, a sound bath works other than with actual brass bowls. What's a work, sound bath? You're just playing all these uh, acoustic instruments that we do a lot of, a lot of drones when we perform. Supposedly, uh, Lou Reed said that he would play metal machine music between sets and concerts and all kinds of fights would break out and stuff. Maybe it's true, I don't know. One of my high school buddies ended up being his, his personal assistant. Then what happened? Anything? Well, he's now he's the personal assistant to Larry Anderson. He just moved up in the personal. Well, I think he was sideways. In the, An assistant yeah, to both were, of them. He's a concrete poet. Cool. And a bass player. Another conspiracy. A bass player. Yeah. Bass player. They're suspicious. I feel like bass players are always the most suspicious. They want to be in charge, but they don't have the personality to tell anyone what to do. We don't have a bass player. Well, that's good. We have two guitarists and vocalists. Guitarists are all geniuses that can't communicate their genius to anyone else. They're all like, ah, this, this and I'm a reasonably intelligent person who can't communicate my intelligence to other musicians. Because I don't know what chord I'm talking about. Then you might be a singer. Yeah, that's me. Right? Yeah. That's all you do. You just go, wing. It's the part that goes, wing, And then they go, oh, yeah, that. And you're like, oh, we're, we no, got No, they this. never listen to me, they think. Well, you maybe got to, like, be a little bit more of a singer. More David Lee Roth. You might need a cape. Bigger hair. These are usually traditional ways I'm, singers I'm can get my attention. Hair out. I'm growing my hair out. Yeah, you might want to tease it. Around your way. Um, maybe some facial hair. No, no facial hair. I'm too old for that. Scarf around the microphone. <laughs> Definitely make your rhythm section. Well, pay I used attention. to be when I was younger. I used to be a pretty weird dancer. So if I can, right now, I like I sit there and I have my little devices and I use two microphones because one's going through one device and one's going through the other device. And a lot of times I do the bass lines just with my voice and the the deep harmonic version. But it doesn't lend itself to dancing around. Mm. I think lyrics lend themselves to dancing around more. Whereas making Ululations, less so. Well, it could. You could dance while you're making your ululations. I mean, I think that's the next frontier. That's the next thing to discover. Yeah. What works? Some good vocals. Well, the thing is, I'm 65, and that's a ridiculous thing to be making rock music, you know. To be older than, like, 27 is an embarrassment in rock and roll. But you're doing it, and so once you're doing it, you can't be embarrassed. You have to just do it. I'll always be an embarrassment to my daughter. <laughs> sure, but, you know. <laughs> well, she nothing did, to do with John. Sure. Yeah. She, she used a little bit of this music on her film. They get concerned that someone's going to sue them when they're working on student films. And wow. Yeah. Well, they know they can't put it on YouTube if they have. 
you know, you, that you can, so they just can. remove it. I have so, so many worries about that, and then you see people YouTube, and they're just like, oh yeah, I took like Living on a Prayer, and I mixed it together with this like Van Halen song, and they just, they just did it. I think now we really have talked about everything there is to talk about. Yeah, Maybe. everything under the sun. We haven't talked about Scott Walker. What about Scott Walker? <laughs> he's like 10 years older than me, and he's doing some of the best work of his I life. I he was still alive. Unless he died recently. <laughs> like while we were talking. Well, he did Bish Bosh. <laughs> he was like 71. I was 61, and that's an amazing piece of work. Yeah, especially there's a video on YouTube with these uh, black tennis players, and it's about uh, the first lines, the mama so-and-so is afraid of Hawaiians. It's got this Hawaiian imagery, and then the black tennis players are doing like the Lindy Hop, and it's an amazing piece of music. And then there's a, like a 30-minute thing uh, that's based on the real life of a court jester, but it's about the court jester as a, an insult comic. So you did a film in the middle of the it's a 30-minute thing? It's just a video that's for the album Bish Bosh. Is it all music, or is there, like, narrative in there? The one about the insult comic has narrative aspects, but the other one's all music. Oh, we've got homework now. Yeah, and he oh, had uh, Sun-O was his band on his last album. I didn't know they worked with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were, like, the backup band. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like they cracked the over 27 thing. You just play really slow. You're the only one who could do this. If you were under 27 and you just went... Everyone would be like, what's wrong with you? You know anything about that sound. Once you're 27, 28, you can go... Oh, you really understand how deep that is. It's a really deep sound. It's really slow. I can understand when I'm doing it. Be in it. Yeah, when I'm in it. That's what they're saying. That's where the sound bath comes in. Musicians who revel in darkness when they get older make some really great stuff. Staying power, like... Black Star, the last David Bowie album is a really good example. Christopher Lee doing all that epic, like castle metal. <laughs> yeah, it's Christopher really good. Lee. Have you heard that Christopher no. Lee album? Christopher Lee, the Dracula actor? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, no, he, he did a metal album. It's like you imagine like Sauron. I mean, it's effective. It does what it's supposed really, to do. I'm... You know, like he sounds like an evil wizard. Wow. <laughs> Darkness yeah. keeps you young. Sometimes, like the guy who did uh, Flowers of Evil, did he? Was he the one who just end up like doing? Positive aphorisms. Baudelaire. Yeah, one, one of those guys. Uh, Baudelaire got uh, was it Baudelaire syphilis or when he was young. Elliot Carter. The one about you know, biting a baby's face, that guy ended up going the polar opposite and doing nothing but positive. Or uh, the EC artist, uh, Ghastly. Yeah. I don't know what he ended up doing, but he was vociferously anti gore comics later in life. I don't know how it works, but you do people who just sort of look at what they did before and they kind of completely flip-flop on it. I can understand it. Yeah? How? I'm just not very good at doing happy, positive stuff. Like, I could never do, you know, monumental public art. Because it kind of has to be positive. Well, like, Tom Modernist, though, he'll do a thing It's about a conspiracy. It's about money and capitalism, big piles of coins, and he just does it. But it's cuter. Than your stuff, right? I mean, I guess. but I mean, you ever got like Aspen do a public thing, and then they were like, "No, it's not gonna work." Not sure if I ever have. That's surprising. I'm surprised by you. You've never. Actually, I was asked once for a thing in Europe. I think I was gonna do some sort of Masonic thing. It was like in the same town that had this devil fountain. It didn't happen. It's like there's a uh, Paul McCarthy, like a gnome holding up a butt plug statue in right. Rotterdam, and it's like. Kids get their photo taken with the butt plug statue. <laughs> it's like a happy public 
monument. Nobody cares there. But somehow, oh, that's not too dark. His stuff is kind of cute in a way. Some of it's cute and some isn't. I mean, there's a lot of it's grotesque the, and frightening. The, the, the but I mean, his public art, porno films. It are, has a cuteness. Are not very cute. Yeah, it's true. But those aren't the public art. No. Right. I think it's more that it's the esotericness. Your work is very esoteric. Well, if I could do something like the Denver Airport murals, that would be. If somebody wanted to, uh, to look at my stuff and start finding conspiracy shit in it, I'm sure they would have a field day. Like industrial, like socialist kind of era murals where like industry and people and, you know, symbols are kind of overlapping. I could see that. Machines and people. I don't want to get to that point where I have to live on public commissions. Well, then that's why you're not getting them. You don't want them. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't want John. It's Hammond not has to, to do with you being too dark. <laughs> it's just hug. they don't want to get. You don't want to do it. You just want that bear hug. That's all you want. That's what uh, John Ham up. We'll get him on the radio right here and be like, John, like, this guy wants a hug. This is what uh, Alistair Crowley was all about: is sending your will out into the world. And I don't have that much will. I don't think there is a distinct lack of will. You know, I, mean, I was ready to be, you know, tossed about like a leaf. Uh, but you're not trying to enforce the viewer to see a certain thing. I only became a careerist artist when I realized oh, there's nothing else I can do for a living. I have to hold on to my career because I can't teach. I can't do special effects. This is the only way I know how to make a living. You know, it's, it's a shitty place to be in because the art world just doesn't give a shit. You know. Like, let's assume you're making the money, money's coming in, kids are getting fed, assistants are getting fed, everybody's happy, but you want people to, like, notice and interpret and care about the work in a meaningful way. Do you ever just be like, eh, like, that's a wall and it's annoying? I think I've gotten as far as I ever expected to in that range. I don't, I mean, you know, there's books on my work. Yes, you get an interview. I have fans. Right. I just don't have a lot of collectors. <laughs> you got enough... I, mean, I got enough. You don't have enough to support all the assistants. I don't have enough to, you know, buy a two million dollar house in the hills, or you have a, it's you know, a nice place. It's a nice it's a place. Beautiful. It's apartment. worth more than we paid for it. Finally, but I, I guess I don't mean that though. I I mean because even the artists who are doing as well as you can do, it doesn't mean that their work is really being understood in any sense of like you know kind of the layers of the onion being pulled back. And I wonder if you ever think, like, that would be nice. Like, people really sitting down and being, like, pulling it apart. And the degree to which the wider art world just kind of has a wall I'd be of really noise. shocked. I mean, I just don't feel but like you that's my place in the world. Yeah, I guess. I'm glad that people like the work. You know, I wouldn't want to be in the position of, like, the Beatles being interpreted by Charles Manson. or Sure. Or but a taxi by driver being interpreted by Arthur Bremer. You but, pick up an art magazine... And someone is being interpreted, and it's bullshit. It's just, it's written in a way that it's not digging into something real. You know, it's missing a lot of things. Your work being full of content, overflowing with symbols that melt into each other, does that ever get to you? If they were 100% wrong, it would get to me. But if they're like 75, 80% right, that's fine. You know, that's a good name like, for a show, 75, 80% right. Uh, if someone was writing about the movie Brazil, Yeah, and they wrote that his boss was Mr. Kurtzman, and they couldn't figure out why he was putting a reference to the Heart of Darkness in this, right. not knowing that he'd actually worked for Harvey Kurtzman. Right, right. That's an acceptable mistake, I guess. <laughs> Fair. And sometimes those weird little mistakes. I had, when I did the Distorted Faces book, 
And it was distributed a little bit through underground bookstores by Leonardo DiCaprio's dad. It was at the Golden Apple, and I got a phone call from this girl who asked if I was Jim Shaw. She was a teenager, and she and her friends were obsessed with this book, and they hadn't actually bought a copy of it. They were just looking at it at the Com- Golden, Golden Apple. Golden Apple's a comic book yeah. story. Yeah, and, uh, and she said, you know, my girlfriend and I, we figured that this is a story about a girl who had been raped. And what it was was a series of distorted faces that get increasingly more distorted uh, with absolutely no narrative whatsoever. Right. So I was, I was taken aback she that they called were, you on the phone? Yeah. How'd I was, your number? I don't know. Jim Shaw. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I might have been in the phone book. Right. There's a lot of Jim Shaws out there. I know. Yeah. And but she found the right one. She found the right one. And I was sort of I was shocked, but I was very interested that she could come up with that interpretation. And I realized, well, yeah, there is some gnarly stuff happening to the faces, but they were just being moved around, not raped. And it wasn't a girl. It was men, women, children, all kinds of people. Right. Just mm. messed up faces. It was more. It was good that there was more. It was interesting that, that someone could come up with that interpretation. I'm not sure that her sanity was all there. Right, but you don't have the desire to impress your will upon the interpreter. Not only do I not have the will, I realize it's impossible. There was an interview between Bowie and Eno, and they started talking about Chris Burden. I know that their interpretation of his being shot was way different from his intention. And they're two smart guys. And I know that Chris Burden wanted to control the dissemination of this stuff, but he couldn't enforce that on the world. I just interviewed Cozy Fanny Tutti, and she had done a, a performance that grossed out Chris Burden. Chris Burden freaked out and left the room, and I always thought, oh, that's an achievement, you know? Mm-hmm. Good for you, Cozy. She's like, yeah, I don't know what I did wrong. I'm making art. Well, he got pretty freaked out when someone was utilizing a gun on campus. Oh, he thought that that was inspired by his... I don't know if he thought it was inspired, but he thought it shouldn't happen. It was like a game of Russian roulette that was going on in as like an art performance and that's when he quit UCLA he was like somebody's risking death in a way that I didn't risk death I, I don't know I'm not sure but he was kind of you know shadowed by those performance pieces for the rest of his life and it's kind of amazing that he's now known chiefly for having created the beautiful light fountain at LACMA and the very exciting metropolis. The car thing. Car yeah. things. So those are like the things he's best known for now. Not being shot, not being he's lying in traffic. I mean, I think traffic, the not, light thing is definitely known, but yeah. It's, not being driven around nailed to a Volkswagen. And that used to be entirely what he was known for. It's almost like two different people. Because like, I think everybody in the art world knows, and most of the art world's mostly who knows about him. But I mean, I think in yeah, LA... Yeah, people, people, people get, get their get picture the taken with that... Light. Yeah. But I don't think um, they think Chris Burden. They just think it has a bunch of lights, you know? Yeah, yeah. He transcended himself. Or anonymized himself. You could say he was a real shot in the arm to the art world. Yeah. All right. Okay, maybe we should actually again. stop this time. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Jim, Jim Shaw. Shaw, his latest work at... The Simon Lee Gallery website. That's S-I-M-O-N-L-E-E-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y dot com. Simon Lee Gallery 
Instagram.com. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Pepping. We also have a Patreon set up. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with whatever you can. Then you will be one of our supporters at patreon.com backslash weedart. All one word. Weedart is produced by Paping and Mnemonic, Mnemonic recordings. recordings. Is that hard to say? Definitely. <laughs> Our show producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Plus you have mono. That's probably why. Yeah, John Hamm doesn't know that I I don't know, maybe everyone mono. knows. It's a LA rumor really, you know.